My friends, would you please take your Bibles this morning, your devices, and would you turn to Romans chapter 9. As we've walked through Romans, we come to this wonderful text of scriptures. One that sometimes people tippy-toe through, or maybe even avoid altogether because of things we can't quite put our minds around. But I tell you what, I am so thankful to God for Romans 9. And I am loving the fact that we're going to step into this discussion. Um, I'm thankful for the truths of scriptures that I can't quite wrap my mind around. You know why? Because it reminds me that I'm human. Sure, I've been indwelt by the Spirit of God through the promise of salvation in the New Covenant, but there are things that I cannot completely wrap my mind around, and I praise God for those things. It keeps us humble. It keeps us dependent on the God of the Word. So we enter into these discussions with absolute joy. The last two weeks, if you remember, we've reviewed Romans chapter 1 through 8, um, especially those visiting with us this morning, kind of an overview of what, what's happening here. We're on this journey through Romans. We've, last two weeks, we overview, or reviewed Romans 1 through 8, and then we previewed Romans 9 through 16, reminding ourselves of the flow of thought, the arguments from the Apostle Paul, the themes that the Spirit of God uh, used Paul to teach us. But I was, I was thinking this, though. If you remember the theme verse, where do we find the theme verse of Romans? Someone, so, someone just yell it out. Romans 1, I'll give you a hint. Romans 1, what? 16. Okay. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Every week we go to this very appropriately. If you want to see the book of Romans unfolded, it is in this text. Here it is. Through the Spirit, Paul proclaims, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation or for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, this is so important to the theme, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we've kind of outlined that. You can see it in the back of your handout. But I want to give you sort of an easy way to remember this. I I cannot dogmatically say that this was the intention of the Apostle Paul. But here's a wonderful way to remember this outline. And the flow of thought of Paul's argument in the book of Romans. Paul starts off the theme by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. My friends, where do we find the gospel? It is so clearly articulated all the way through the book. But particularly in chapters 1 through 8. You remember this. Condemnation, justification, sanctification, glorification. Where do we find, honestly, almost any theologian you go to will say the greatest expose, the greatest exposure of the gospel ever written in human history is Romans chapter 1 through 8. So dogmatically, so clearly, we find the elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you want a good way to remember the book of Romans, think of Romans 1 through 8 as highlighting, I am not ashamed of the gospel. But then when we get into Romans 9 through 11, we see more of this story exposed. I think you can see this in the theme. Again, I'm not trying to build this into Paul. I can't dogmatically say this is intention. 
but if not, it's, it's super crazy ironic. <laughs> All right. Led by the Spirit, we find the middle section of this theme, for it is the power of God for salvation. Okay, what did he just say? Your go- the gospel, your salvation, my salvation is, is, is determined by God's almighty power. It is a revelation of his power, not mine. It is the power of God, but then you see the rest of Romans 9 exposed in this one statement. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to to the Greek. My friends, if you want a very clear description of what we're talking about in Romans 9 through 11, there it is. The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is Romans 9 through 11. But I love it because then verse 17 shows us, I believe, exposes to us the focus of the last part of the book. Chapters 12 through 15. What are we talking about? Transformation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to transform every area of your life. How does God... Spirit, move Paul to write this. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. My friends, God didn't save our souls to have us sit on the couch. Do you understand this? To just watch all this unfold. He saved our souls to get going. To trust him and do the work of Jesus Christ day in, day out. That's the intention of our salvation. And he clearly delineates this. Revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. If you want to see that exposed, we go straight to Romans chapter 12 and we see that our lives are a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, our logical worship. So as we process through this book and as you try to process through this complicated outline on the back, but quite honestly, I I think this is followable. The journey. You can see where we've been. We can see where the tour bus has gone, where the tour bus is going. Highlighted in green today, we come to this wonderful, wonderful discussion. The power of God for salvation leading us to this. God's righteousness revealed through this word, election. On the bottom of the back of the handout, you can see all of these definitions that are helpful. Here's what we are talking about. God's sovereign selection and establishment of his own people of faith. God's people of faith. We're talking about God's people from all human history. Catch this. God's people from all human history who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We're talking about God's people of faith chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. If you doubt that, go to Ephesians 1 and 1 Peter 1. You cannot white out those passages in your Bible. Maybe we don't completely understand it. No, I will say for sure we don't completely understand it, but it's in the Bible. For the foundation of the world, God bringing forth his people, showing in his redemptive plan that he has a people established for his name. This people that Matt just referred to, that we just prayed about, from all kindred, tribe, people, and nation, worshiping the Lamb. You find that in Revelation. This is God's revealed plan. This is God's people. 
And so that is what we are talking about, understandable or not. This is what God's word refers to. In God's redemptive plan, before the cross, these people came primarily from the nation of Israel. Think of this. If you think about God's redemptive plan, where did God's people come before Abraham? From the nations. Where did Abraham come from? From the nations. He was a heathen, a false pagan worshiper, this Abraham. God called him out, established his people. God is establishing his people through all of human history. Then after Abraham, where where do God's people primarily come from? From Israel. Why? Because they have his word. They, They are looking for Jesus. By the way, we've already talked of this in our study. How has anybody in all of human history ever come to Jesus Christ or come to God in faith? It's by placing your faith in Jesus. In no way, in no place in human history has it ever been based on your good works. It has always been by faith in Jesus, the promised Messiah. So we find here in the scripture that God is doing his work. He's establishing his people. And by the way, when you get to Romans 9, this is not like groundbreaking. Okay? Why? Because it's already been taught all the way through the Bible. You're saying, what are you you talking about? Okay, if we could just dial in for a second on the ministry of Jesus. We're talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, verse 37, he says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is Jesus talking about these people of faith. And you might say, okay, well then what about John 3? Yes, let's go to John 3. John 3, chapter 16. Paul, or or sorry, Jesus Christ himself to Nicodemus highlights the fact that God is doing his work among the nations. How does he say this? For God so loved the world, people from all nations, not limited to one ethnicity, Nicodemus, not limited to you and your people. God's gospel is to the nations, So much that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is Jesus. But then you go right back to what Jesus says three chapters later and he very, very clearly says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Try to wrap your mind around that. You'll blow some mind gaskets, I promise you. But my friends, it is in the Bible, it is taught by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is from the beginning of your Bible to the end that God is establishing his people. So, what do we do? We trust God. This is where we're going with our study today. I'm gonna kind of give you a spoiler right now. Okay, there's a tension happening in Romans 9. It's not the one we intend, we think. It's going to be a little bit different than you think in Romans 9 through 11, 9, 1 through 6. It's going to be a little different than we would anticipate. But at the end of this, here's what Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, God's word has never failed. 
As much as you think, we think we can, we can get our minds around this, we're not going to be able to. So what do we do? We trust God's word. Why? Because God's word has never failed. When you come to, I mean, like I said, this is not new. When you come to the book of Acts, you see Peter's ministry. So already Paul we see. We see Jesus' ministry. Peter ministering in Acts chapter 13. Actually, sorry, Paul. Paul in Acts 13. And Barnabas. What do they preach to Antioch and Pisidia? Catch this. Please catch this. I'm not just fabricating this. This is not just a doctrine that has been taught as being uh, errant and misguided. There is some truth to believing this. Here's what Paul says. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's not just me as a preaching pastor saying this. This is what is in God's word. So somehow we need to trust God's word. The biblical truth as taught in Romans 9 through 11, is that God is a sovereign God who can be trusted because he has always been a God who has established his people. He is establishing his people, he has established his people, and he forever will establish his people because he is God. As we stated last week, I want to be very clear on this, on this side of glory we will never understand all the dynamics of divine election. Catch that. Man, I can't wait to go to Crosspoint and hear all about divine election. I'm going to get it all dialed in. No, you won't. I'm going to tell you, you're going to get to the chapter 11 and you're still going to be scratching your head a little bit. Maybe even more, but I'm going to tell you, here is what I pledge to you that I will go verse by verse through Romans 9. And just like I don't agree with everything that my friend, not my friend, but a mentor in a different way because of his books and whatnot and there's several guys I would like to read and I don't agree with all he says and I'm not a Piperite but what John Piper says when he was going through seminary and working through this he's like I wish I could just go to John uh, to, to, to Romans 9 and just preach it as it says it my friend that's what I'm going to do I'm not going to try to what we call do hermeneutical gymnastics it's 11 o'clock last night and I'm reading through this pamphlet put out about 50 years ago and I just keep, about how devious all of this is. And I'm shaking my head and I'm scratching my head, almost coming to tears thinking, stop it! And I watch and I go to different texts and he, this, this pamphlet, this little pamphlet, even goes to Romans 9 and he's tippy-toeing through stuff and then he's doing what we call hermeneutical gymnastics. This doesn't mean this, it's gotta mean this and I'm gonna go to this place and I'm like, no, stop! Preach what God's word is and trust that it's truth. And so my friends, that is my pledge as we go through this. We will never understand on this side of glory. And that's super important. Why? Guess what, my friends? As soon as we see Jesus, <laughs> we will all think like <laughs> Jesus. Guess what? We will see what we see now in a glass darkly. We will see very clearly. But until that point in time, we trust God's word, we go with God's word, we, we, we study God's word. We will never understand all the dynamics of di uh, divine election, even in a body like this, unless I just demanded, or the elder team demanded, you have to be a member of this church, and you have to believe in this to be a member of this church. That is not going to happen. <laughs> my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a massive element of freedom when it comes to secondary issues, and we've already taught the fact that there's a, there's a massive case that could be made for this being a secondary uh, doctrinal issue. The dynamics of grace. 
and how it works. We trust the salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But we will never all agree on all the dynamics of divine election. And my friends, that's okay. But I will say this, to some degree or another, catch that wording very clearly, to some degree or another, we better believe in some aspect of divine election. Why? Because God's word says it. Okay, all of that, man. Um, by the way, following last week's sermon, thank you. I've had such good conversations with several of you in this room. Helpful conversations, meaningful conversations. I love it. God's word is meant to be studied and embraced. Um, and, and maybe contrary to maybe a bit of, uh, I could give you a bit of pastoral clarification from something I said last, night, last week. Please do diligently research and prayerfully study this out. Even if it means Google. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but I will continue on with this caution. Refuse to let ungrounded feelings or preset inclinations or deep temptations for... Um, Confirmation bias is the word, right? Confirmation bias to distract you from believing the clear teachings of the scriptures. Our goal is that we joyfully embrace this doctrine, the doctrine of divine election, even if we can't understand it completely, but we trust it the way that Paul did so that we can fully worship God the way that Paul did. And where do we find how Paul worships? It's the passage we started out last week in the end of Romans 11. That should be our conclusion of this whole discussion. Okay, let's get into this. Romans 9, 1 through 6. As we enter into this discussion, Romans chapter 9, 1 through 6. How, how do we take this? What, what atmosphere, what pace is being set here? Well, in a very personal, practical way, I want you to think of this. Please. Please very practically think about this. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you are so burdened that someone come to Jesus Christ in saving faith? The tears would come to your eyes. The pain would come to your gut because you are so burdened that they come to Jesus Christ. The observable pain, the hopelessness. You watch their lives and you're like, Ouch! The discouragement. Nowhere to turn. When practical physical trials come their way, they have no grounding. And you see their lives and you're crying out before Almighty God. God, please save their souls. Give them hope in Christ. Help them, Almighty God, to see the joys of Jesus Christ. Help them to see the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ. Help them not to put their trust in the superficial things of this world, but to put their trust in Jesus. And your heart is heavy. Tears come to your mind, your eyes. This has happened on several occasions for me. More recently, thinking through ones I've loved and the community and, and 
I mean, and wherever it might come from for you, in the community, your family, the workplace, your sports team, you care for these people. But for me, someone I love and praying, I found myself, I mean, crying out to God in the middle of my yard, God, please save this person. Have you ever been there? Okay, that is the mindset that we enter into Romans 9 with. Sometimes we're tempted to enter into Romans 9 with, I'm going to cross all my theological T's and dot all my theological I's. I've got it. No, my friends, when you enter into Romans 9, there's a very clear intention of how, by Paul, through the Spirit, how we're to enter into this discussion. Would you look with me how we enter into this discussion through the Apostle Paul's testimony? Here it is, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unseeking, unceasing anguish in my heart for I, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are, all, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. All right, what did, what did we just read? Through passion for his unbelieving brothers, and catch that it is a passion. Paul acknowledges that there is a tension point in this discussion of divine election. Ironically enough, it is not the tension point that you're thinking. Right away, when we come to tension points in divine election, where's the tension point that we go to? Divine election and human responsibility, or or a free will, as some have titled it. That is the tension we automatically go to. And I don't want to make an argument based on silence here, but I'm going to tell you, that is not where Paul goes with this tension. His tension is a bit different, and I think we could, we could do well to take note of where Paul's tension goes. Okay, then what is Paul's tension here? I think we find it very clearly summarized in verses 3 and 6. Here's the tension. Is God really trustworthy? Will God keep his promises? Is this God, Paul, that you've talked about for eight chapters, is this God worth placing my entire claim in? Am I all in? Is this God worth it? Can I trust this God? That is the tension Paul's working through. And he says this, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Clearly, what's the meaning here? Paul's physical brothers. So who are we talking about? Jews. From the bloodline of Abraham. Recipients of the promise of Abraham. All of them were in danger of God's just wrath and eternal condemnation. How does he say this further in verse 6? And I hope you're following me here. It's very important. 
The tension is not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not all those who came from the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are saved. Not all physical descendants of Abraham are part of God's true spiritual people of faith. Catch that. Why? Because not all Jews, and we we don't want to oversimplify this, but it gets, we can trust God's word here and it gets rather simple. Why? Why are they not all saved? Because not all Jews have placed their faith and trust in Christ. You don't have to read long through the scriptures to see that very clearly exemplified. Even, even if they are a nation through whom God chose to advance his redemptive plan, not all physical Israelites have truly experienced the saving faith of Romans 1 through 8 because they are not all God's spiritual people of faith. And so really, the tension comes down to this question. Think on this. Let's make this personal. Let's make this practical. Can this sovereign God really be trusted? Paul, you've made a claim. You've built an argument for eight chapters. This God is to be high and lifted up. The power of this God, the righteousness of this God. But Paul, what about God's chosen people, Israel? Has he thrown them under the bus? Didn't he make a promise? Did God and his sovereign plan in the Old Testament fail, Paul? And you'll remember, in this congregation, you have Jews and Gentiles alike. Remember this. We talked of this last week. Or maybe it was two weeks ago. You have Jews and Gentiles in this congregation. Remember this. So the Jews are like, are we just thrown under the bus? And the Gentiles are like, the God of the Old Covenant, is he going to keep his word in the New Covenant? This is a very real question. Can this sovereign God be trusted? Didn't God make a promise to Abraham and his seed? And is God truly not finishing what he started with Abraham? If God didn't keep his covenant to his old covenant people, will he keep his covenant to his new covenant people? Can this sovereign God really be trusted? That is the tension that we're entering into Romans 9 through 11 about. If you want to make this very practical, my friends, this is the question that you have probably almost every day of your life. Yes, I've come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, but God, do you really know what's best for my life? Have you had that question this week? That pain, that sickness you're going through? God, do you really know best? My friend, this is not a foreign question to every day of our lives. Is God really trustworthy? But I want us to notice this before we even get into the dynamics of this tension. We need to approach it this way. What was Paul's gracious approach to this discussion? We have to start here because Paul starts here (laughs) through the Spirit. How does he enter into this entire discussion of this tension? Here it is. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What is Paul saying? I'm not fabricating my passion at all. This is genuinely how I feel. 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I am smitten with a deep grief and a continual inner pain. I carry this burden incessantly. What's the burden? The people I care about come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. His people. And how deep does this passion go? Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Catch that. These words, accursed and cut off from Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Sometimes, seriously, I, I read that, I'm like, there's no way Paul said that. But it's in the Bible. That's how deeply Paul cared for the souls of people. My friend, when we enter into this discussion about divine election, salvation, God's trustworthiness, how should you and I enter into this discussion? I think based very clearly on the example of the Apostle Paul, but even more than that, the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we enter into this discussion with an absolute care and commitment to the souls of people. Seriously, if we we think we've got this divine election thing figured out and we haven't shared Jesus with one person this week, there's a problem. What if we carried a fraction of this passion for unregenerate souls around us? What if this was our approach to discussion on divine election over the next couple weeks? What if we embrace the biblical truth of divine election but have Great confidence in God's sovereignty. Having this great confidence, we do whatever we possibly can to see others come to Christ in saving faith. Anything we possibly can. Our hearts are burdened. Why is this so important? As we talked of last week, the temptation is to get so caught up in the details of theology that we lose sight of the passion and heartbeat of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, and of Paul, arguably, other than Christ, the greatest theologian in human history. What does the greatest theologian in human history say? I wish I could be a curse so that other people come to Jesus Christ. What, what if we embraced that mentality when it came to our approach to this doctrine of election? Sure, we should dial in theologically. Sure, we should diligently study and faithfully teach God's word. But when was the last time we cried out together, friends, body of Christ, brothers and sisters, when we cried out for our families, our neighbors, our workplaces, our communities? That is the approach to divine election. God, please, by your grace, save souls and use me. If we come into the teachings of the doctrine of election and we find our backside squarely planted on a chair we don't understand the doctrine of election why why am i so intense about this i would say for a couple different reasons one of them is because of even accusations on my own life this isn't new that guy he believes in the doctrine of election Man, he must not even want to go tell people about Jesus. False! There's elders at Cross Point Community Church. They believe in this Calvinism. 
Why? Because we believe the Bible talks about election? No. Uh, There ought to be a body of believers here who, yes, we believe in the doctrine of election because God's word says it, but there's not one person here that doesn't go out every week and share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with anybody and everyone, anytime and every time. Do you understand? That is who we are. So yes, I get intense about that. Yes, my wife's raising her eyebrows really big right now. Okay, let's go to the key tension points here, the key details of this tension. Remember the key tension, all physical descendants of Abraham are not truly part of God's people of faith. So has God failed? Can God be trusted? Paul doesn't shy from the opposing argument. This is so cool. He doesn't shy from talking about the arguments from the other side. He highlights the argument through the Spirit. What does he say? They are all Israelites. They do belong to the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and so on and so forth. What is Paul doing in this text right here? He's acknowledging that God truly has physically blessed all Israel. Israel truly was a blessed nation by God physically. But, this is a big however. I would say this is a big but, but that's gotten me in trouble before. It is a big however. The last part of this tells us, and we're going to get into this, tells us exactly what the intention was. Here it is. They are all Israelites. Physical descendants born out of God's promise to Abram. Yes, they are. Jews come. The children of Israel come born out of God's promise to Abraham. They all belong to the adoption. All of these Israelites, they, even the ones sitting in the congregation of the church of Rome, these ones, they belong to the adoption. This is not a salvation sense. This is in a representation sense. What are we talking about? They have been chosen out of the nations. Again, remember, who was Abraham before God called him? He was a pagan worshiper from the nations. They belong to the glory. This is important. Who are the glory bearers? Who are the the ones through redemptive history that protected any discussion on the glory of God? It was Israel. Why? Remember the whole discussion on the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God in the tabernacle? This was a big deal. Of anybody and everyone, God used physical descendants of Abraham to protect his glory on this earth. To them belong the covenants. What are we talking about? Well, you know your Bible, right? There's covenants in the Bible. The covenant of Abraham. I mean, you can just track through them. God made a covenant with Abraham. So sure, Abraham's from Abraham's seed because he's Abraham. (laughs) What about other covenants you find in the scriptures? We're talking about the Mosaic covenant. Where did Moses come from? No, he didn't come from his adopted parents in Egypt. He came from the line of Abraham. Okay, what about David? King David, the covenant that God gave with David. David was from the line of Abraham. So what's the argument Paul's making here? All of the covenants you find in your scripture, all of them came from descendants of Abraham. All of them are Israel. So God truly has physically blessed Israel. 
the giving of the law. Who did God give his law to, friends? All right, Israel through Moses. That's why we call it the Mosaic Law, right? Who did God choose to give his law to so that Israel knew how how to worship him? Moses. Who was Moses? He was a descendant of Abraham. Continuing on, the worship goes right in line with the Mosaic Covenant. The entire system of sacrifices and ceremonies that we find in the the Old Testament. Who was this given to? It wasn't given just to anybody in the nations. It was given to the descendants of Abraham. Okay, what about the promises? What are we talking about? If you open your Bible, you're going to find all the way through the Old Testament, there's prophecies. What are these prophecies saying? You know. We really talk about this a lot around Christmas time. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. That's the whole whole Testament. The rescuer's coming. Where does that start in the Old Testament? Right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve sinned, what was the promise of God? The rescuer's coming. The rescuer's coming. How does God pose his covenant to Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to give you land, seed, and catch this. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That is part of the Abrahamic covenant, and it is pointing to Jesus Christ. All of the promises in the Old Testament are saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And all of those, my friends, who did they come through? Physical descendants of Abraham. Obviously, prior to that, it was a bit different of a story, but as you work through the scriptures, the physical descendants of Abraham. To them belong the patriarchs. Oh, this was a huge talking point for Jews. This was like the major up one. (laughs) Okay, all you Gentiles, all y'all Gentiles in the congregation in Rome, yeah. Which one of all y'all can claim you have the bloodline of Abraham in you? Uh, That's where they were going with this. What's the point? Why is Paul bringing up all of these argument points? Here it is. There's no way you can possibly deny the fact that God gave promises to Israel and that God physically blessed Israel. However, and it is a big however, there's no way you could possibly deny the fact that God promises to Israel. However, for what purpose? To what end? That is where Paul goes with this. Why did God do all of this for physical Israel? Why? He does it. It's not hidden at all. It's directly in the text. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, why all of this? Why any of this? Why all of these blessings for Israel? It is because Jesus was coming. All of these things, Israel. All of these things that you participated in physically, they were all for a reason to point to Jesus, to point to Jesus, to point to Jesus. All the covenants, all the ceremonies, everything is pointing to Jesus. So my friends, this leads us to the confident assurance of the tension. Let's go right there. I'm going to have to hustle. What is the confident assurance? And I won't dig too deeply into this because the rest of chapter 9 deals with this. 
What is the confident assurance that we hold to all the time? No, God did not fail Israel. Why? Here it is. It is not as though the word of God has failed. I mean, that's one way of saying it like the English Standard Version says. I think as you look through how this is described, it might be better said like this. It is by no means the case that the word of God has fallen. It is not possible that God's word has been unsuccessful. Why? Because Jesus came. God proved that he was worthy of his word by sending Jesus. God's word has never failed. God's word will never fail. What is the assurance for the tension? My friends, it's the same that we need to take every single day of our lives. You right now, working through these tensions in your life, here it is. God is faithful. God will keep his word. Take that to the bank. Even if you don't understand it all. And please understand that Paul could have gone to that. The whole tension of divine election and free will. He didn't. Where did he go with this tension? Do you trust God? Do you trust that God's word has never failed and it will never Joshua 23, 14, a verse that I've been meditating on. Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised. Friends, along with the Roman believers, we must remember this as we enter into the rest of chapter 9, the chapter full of crystal clear examples. Okay, if you want to read through chapter 9, please do. You're going to find crystal clear examples of the fact that God's word stands. God will keep his word because God is God. We must run to this key truth. I mean, if you take the first five verses of Romans 9, working into verse 6, here's a key truth that we really got to hold on to. This. As we fully trust the God of the gospel, we must graciously care for souls. We have to take that going into this chapter. Paul's not saying, take it all on your shoulders, go do it. No, he's saying trust God, but trust God and get going. Trust God and get sharing. That's what Paul's saying here. So we have to ask these questions. So what? Man, there's a lot of inquisitive looks right now. <laughs> it's because we're trying to process this, trying to figure this out. The challenge is to go to God's word and to do what it says. Do I fully trust God's word? Even if I can't put all the pieces together, do I trust God's word? Do I fully trust the God of the gospel? Let us ask ourselves this question over and over and over again through this entire study. Do we truly and joyfully trust the God that created us? Our good Father Here's another question. I have three questions today. I've already asked the first one. Here's the second one. Am I placing my trust in outward associations or an inward change? You really have to wrestle with that a bit as you look at what Paul says to Israel. Why? Because there were those in Israel that were putting all of their stake in the fact that they came from Abraham. 
It was all the outward connections. My friend, that, that is not too different than what we see in the 21st century, is it? People to say, I'm good with God because I go to church on Sunday. I'm good with God because I do all the ordinances. I'm good with God because I do my daily devotions. I'm good with God because I come from a family of faith. My dad was a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. My great-grandpa was a pastor. I'm good with God. My friend, what, what are you basing your eternal destiny on? Outward forms and connections or inward transformation from faith? This is the same thing that Paul talks to Israel about. So, my friend, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ alone. Not Jesus Christ and all these good things I can do. The Jesus Christ who will transform your life by his grace. One last question, and we're ready to go. Would you ask yourself this, my friend? Do I genuinely care for others like Christ did? Just a reminder for all of us, it's not in our department, catch this, it's not in our department to decide who God's people of faith are or aren't. It's in God's department. So what do we do? We truly trust the God of the gospel and we go. We share. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How will they hear without a preacher? So my friend, what do you do this week? Not in an annoying way, but in a genuine way. Who are you going to share the grace of God with this week in this community? My friend, what neighbor are you going to tell about the love of Jesus Christ? My friend, what family member are you going to call and say, listen, I'm praying that you come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Until our sovereign God, our good Father, calls us home, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we share, we show, we shine the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone, anywhere and everywhere. Why? Because this is what Jesus did, and this is what Jesus commands. Remembering that it is not as though the word of God has failed. God, thank you for the time we could spend in your word today. The absolute clarity of your word that shows us that God's word has never failed and it will never fail. God, I pray that we would trust this. I pray that as we enter into these discussions with things we can't quite grasp on this side of glory, but also knowing there are very clear truths taught in your scripture, you would give us the grace to trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Give us grace, we pray.